good. Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Morgan Jerkins, author of Call Baby, out right now from Harper Books, an imprint of HarperCollins. Morgan Jerkins is the author of Wandering in Strange Lands and the New York Times bestseller, This Will Be My Undoing. A visiting professor at Columbia University and a Forbes 30 Under 30 leader in media, Jerkins' short-form work has been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, L. Esquire, and The Guardian, among many others. In this conversation, talking about her debut novel, we discuss Black motherhood in all of its complexities, magical realism in African-American literature and how there is always some truth to it, and the connection and the syncretism between the sacred and the secular, no matter who or what you worship. Black and published family, let's welcome Morgan to the show. All right. So, Morgan, first, thank you for joining me today on Black and Published. Thank um, you. No problem. I always like to start the interview by asking, when did you first know that you were a writer? Man, <laughs> well, I thought that I knew that I was a writer when I was in high school. Um, and I just mean because I like I wanted to create. Um, I was a person that kind of kept my emotions bottled up. And I sought refuge through invention, I guess is the best word, seeking refuge through fictitious worlds and characters. But the older I get, the more I realize I had a writer capability earlier than that. I remember when I was younger on the school bus, I would uh, revise famous movies and create like alternative mini scripts for them and have <laughs> my friends act them out <laughs> while we were on our way to school. So I, I, I always had my head in the clouds. I was always like elsewhere. Now, when did I know that I was a good writer? That came much later on. But I did know that I like to uh, invent stories. So you've always been on this path to basically write for a living. Yeah, for the most part. Mm-hmm. So then you you talk about, you know, the inventiveness you had as a child. Mm-hmm. But yet your first two books were nonfiction. Uh-huh. Make, it, make it make sense. <laughs> I'm going to make it make sense. All right. So the short answer is because more people knew me audience wise for my nonfiction. When I graduated from college, I had I thought I had my life planned out for me. I thought I was going to graduate. I was going to get a job at a literary agency or publishing house. Magically, someone was going to find my manuscript in the copy room and I was going to discover it. And then I was just going to be it's clean ascension. Obviously, that did not happen. Um, I did not get a job graduating from college, um, despite the fact that I'd spent umpteen hours and a lot of money traveling to and from New Jersey for 15 minute interviews that would take up my whole day. And I wouldn't even get a call back. It was emotionally devastating. On top of that, I got dumped. <laughs> um, I, I, I will say, I don't know if I say dumped, but um, it was a situation, you know how that go. And I thought me and this person was going to be together and it did not turn out that way. So not only was I heartbroken, Romantically, I was heartbroken professionally. Um, and I moved back home to my mother's um, my mother's home in, in a small town in New Jersey. And I was spending so many hours on the internet. And I saw that people my age were producing content for renowned publications. And they were building a portfolio. They were getting paid. And I was like, oh, wow, I, maybe I could do that. And that's what I did. Um, I started freelancing. That's how I found my agent. And she knew that I wrote fiction. I was actually in a master's program, MFA program at the time. And my, my concentration was fiction. But because my name was more associated with nonfiction, she said, maybe we should do that project first. And that's what sold first. 
And so that's what we went with. But fiction was my first, uh, well, it's my first love. So were you working on Call Baby at the same time that you sold uh, This Will Be My Undoing? No, no. As uh, so you know what, uh, This Will Be My Undoing was a culmination of all of the essays and pieces that I've written that centered on Black womanhood um, and the inequalities that I faced, other others faced memories that I hadn't unpacked for years that I was able to expound upon in the in the expanse of a book. Call Baby came about um, within probably my penultimate term of my master's program. I finally gathered the gall and the money to move to New York. And I was living in the thick of central Harlem, just blocks from the Apollo. And it was so much activity and it also made me feel vulnerable as a black woman because I had not been used to a city before. And I was thinking about, and this was at the time where I don't know if you remember back in 2015, where there was conversations around street harassment and all of that and public. It was really zeitgeisty at that time. And that was really influencing my idea of what it means to be a black woman in a rapidly changing neighborhood in a metropolis like New York. I always knew that I wanted to write about Harlem, but the the developments of Call Baby had were just immense over the years because then I started to rap in, I started to become more, I don't want to say obsessed, but I guess with black motherhood and its precarity in the United States. Um, and that also got into the mix. And of course, you know, Call Baby had gone through many drafts, but initially Call Baby was supposed to be a short story. My mentor, his name is Alex Chi, wonderful literary citizen, um, has written books like Edinburgh and Queen of the Night. And um, he actually told me, he was my advisor, and he was like, this needs to be a novel. And the rest, as they say, was history. <laughs> okay. So I see the, the layer and in the influence of Harlem and Black motherhood. Mm-hmm. But then you also have this other layer of like the Great Migration and Louisiana specifically. Mm-hmm. And like my family's from New Orleans, so I got really oh. excited. When oh, I wow. Louisiana, I, like, oh, I already know where she going. I'm, I'm well, here I, for it. I was worried. I thought that, you know, I was trying to be, I was, I was nervous. You know what I'm saying? Because even though Louisiana is a part of my heritage, I just learned about the depth of that lineage through writing my second book. Yes, wandering in strange lands. Yeah, right, right. Question: So, how did writing "Wandering in Strange Lands," which is like your memoir and tracing your lineage, yeah, how did that help influence the shape of the novel that we have now? Oh, the 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 undercurrent of displacement. If you read uh, "Wandering in Strange Lands," um, especially with regards to the South, there's so there's so many stories about Black people whose families have been there for generations being displaced culturally and physically with regards to land, land loss, or land theft. Um, and I added that theme of displacement with regards to Mama, the matriarch of the Melanson family, because she's already migrated. You know, she, she, she's had to leave and she is going to stop at nothing to make sure that her family is rooted in Harlem forever, no matter what it takes. And so that's what I wanted when people read this book, because I didn't want to think, oh, she's a villain. Maybe, but also she's a woman who wants to stay rooted, just like many of the other quote unquote old heads of Harlem. They don't want to leave. You know what I mean? So I wanted people to understand a little bit of her story and how it, it, it's a centuries long, um, what do I, a fear, trepidation that's going on there. Yeah, when I got to the end and she's looking at scuff on the wall and she said, and she's telling Josephine, I told you I was going to live and die in this house. I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> right, and so that's the way that I love to write. I love to write in, in circles. And what I mean by that is, I'm not going to say black life generally, but the black life that I have observed and lived so much of the events that I've seen, particularly with women, and they often come through premonitions, dreams, quick little remarks that in the future, they come back around in full bloom and you understand fully on what the previous month was trying to teach you or trying to give you a message. 
And that's what I wanted to show through that. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, but I, I definitely wanted to show that. Like anything that I'm talking about in the first half is going to come up again in the second half. Yeah. I, and I like that it all came back because when I started from like the very beginning, and I think you first mentioned the holes in the wall and the cracks in the corner. And I think in the very beginning, they're really small. But mm-hmm. something that you mentioned about how Iris looked off at them, I was like, Mm-mm, those are spirits. Yes, that right, <laughs> right, right. And I was like, this is either going to go one or two ways for readers. They're going to look at this and they're going to be like, why is she talking about these, these, excuse my language, damn cracks? Or they're going to be like, no, there's something there. And that's what I wanted to show with Iris. Um, Iris, the inspiration I got from Iris was um, Pilati. Um, if you remember from Toni Morrison's novel, do you, me- do you remember her? Um, Which I think novel? I can't pronounce her name. Um, to- oh, was it Song of Solomon? Um, oh, I yes, think that's, Pilot. Yeah, I know you yeah sorry, about. Pilot, excuse me. Pilot. So you remember Pilot, like just very weird, um, but also just very deep. And that's what I want. That was the inspiration for Iris was a little bit of a pilot. And um, I wanted people to pay attention to her when her mind starts wandering and she starts looking at all of the cracks and the crevices in the home. I wanted people to understand that this isn't just a random brownstone that it's it's been lived in. And these women are carrying so much and you just can't tamper with life and death like that and not have it be so palpable and that's what i wanted to elucidate through these cracks that these spirits they may not be jump scare like but they are appearing in other ways the house is literally deteriorating from the inside out yeah but even like in the very beginning when the cracks are little and i guess what sets the stage for the book and for everything to get bigger um with layla is that when they they turned Layla away and it's finally revealed why it says that because Iris kept saying that woman is going to make this house cave in on us mm-hmm. and then it it's because of her statement that my mom doesn't give Layla the call and then it's like but she's seeing in the past the present and the future all at the same time so mm-hmm. you don't know what her statement was related to and it was like so then I kept thinking toward the end like if they had just given her the call, would this even have happened and gone on the rest of the way? But then we wouldn't have a book, I guess. Right, right. And, and but the thing is, like, I want people to understand, like, Iris, my mom's just fed up with her. And that's what I wanted to explain. Like, Iris is poignant, but she, my mom is so disappointed in her. Her, their, her life did not go the way the mom wanted. And even, and I think the the way that Iris came in just like, given this premonition, it scared them because these women were already considered pariahs of the neighborhood. These women were already financially in an unstable place. So to have your daughter say to you, well, this woman is going to, is going to tear us apart. It just shook her. She's like, I don't want to, I don't want to have to deal with this. But by rejecting Layla, that just brought on more of an upheaval for decades to come. And it brings in the question, even if she would have given her the call, would that have changed anything? I mean, this is a question of, you know, fate and predeterminism that writers have been exploring since before Jesus, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and like Greek mythology and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. But like you say, like Mama is fed up with Layla, but then she was also disgusted by Josephine. Oh, yeah. Because the thing about Josephine is I want people to understand is like Josephine is emotionally stunted. This is a woman who she doesn't know life outside these couple blocks of Harlem. That's not how she was raised. As the firstborn, her job was to make other children. That was the only job that she was supposed to have. And the thing about Josephine, is she's not like Iris. She wanted to impress Mama so much. And the paradox or the irony in that is despite the fact that she is a call barrier she and she can impress clients that way with what she has with her body she still can't create anything from within meaning a child and so that vexes her for a long time and she is a bit of a prisoner in that home so that's why the dynamic is different between Josephine and Mama and Mama and Iris because Josephine wants to impress Mama so badly and Mama is just disappointed in both of them but she needs them she needs them still because they're literally all that they have. Until Hallow. 
Mm-hmm. Until Hala. Mm-hmm. I want you to read like a little section of it because we're just all into it now. <laughs> Absolutely. As a, as a matter of fact, I was going to read the part about us, uh, the cracks in the wall. So I'll just read um, a little couple paragraphs of that. And then would that be okay? All right. So this is the description of Call Baby. Layla desperately wants to become a mother, but each of her previous pregnancies has ended in heartbreak. This time has to be different. So she tur- turns to the Melanzans, an old and powerful Harlem family known for their call, a precious layer of skin that is the secret source of their healing power. After a deal for Layla to acquire a piece of call falls through, she is devastated. And when the child is stillborn, overcome with grief and rage. What she doesn't know is that a baby will soon be delivered in her family by her niece, Amara, an ambitious college student and given to the Melansons to raise as one of their own. Halo is special. She's born with a call and their matriarch, Maman, predicts the girl will restore the family's prosperity. Growing up, Halo feels that something in her life is not right. Did Josephine, the woman she calls mother, really bring her into the world? Why does her cousin Helena get to go to school and roam the streets of New York freely while she's confined to the family's decrepit brownstone? As the Melisons' thirst to maintain their status grows, Amara, now a successful lawyer running for district attorney, looks for a way to avenge her long-standing grudge against the family. When mother and daughter cross paths, Halla will be forced to decide where she truly belongs. Engrossing, unique, and page-turning, Call Baby illuminates the search for familial connection, the enduring power of tradition, and the dark corners of the human heart. All right, Morgan, it's all yours. All right. There were cracks on all four corners of Maman's bedroom, and they were hungry. Black, jagged, and deep, they resembled outstretched hands whose claws leaned toward the center, anticipating when they could devour her whole. They were Maman's biggest nuisance. Over the years, she'd squatted thousands to get them painted over, but there was no polymer in the world that could overpower a vengeful spirit. She knew their brownstone was askew ever since Iris had been born, cups stained in the cupboard minutes after they had been washed, subtle sounds like fingernails scraping against windows, or sharp winds on the inside persisted. But ever since Iris's premonition about that woman Layla, the outside presences became more apparent. The holes in the ceiling grew larger, the wallpaper chipped and crusted no matter how many times it was patched over, and the aroma in certain rooms was stale and dead, even if perfumed oil and glass decanters was used to diffuse the smell. She didn't want to believe it. The house had been lived in for decades. Wear and tear was natural, but Mama was getting older. She'd have to move from her master bedroom down to the office on the first floor because her legs were no match for the stairs in her old age. Though the call nevertheless protected her body, it did not protect the mind in the same way. She had always been perceptive, paranoid even, which is why she took Iris's words to heart. But now she wondered if taking heed to that premonition about Layla's unborn child wasn't enough. The Melanson family were accustomed to precarious living situations. Before migrating, they lived along the Cane River in Natchitoches, Louisiana. Each family owned a home on Ayers property from the river to the back swamp. The ranch in which my mom resided was on land between the river and an artificial levee. The living room itself right along the central waterway, a risk for whenever there were high tides and hurricanes. Cochon de lait characterized many weekends, night-long carrying on and feasting on roast suckling pig before Sunday mass at St. Augustine. When call bears lived peacefully, they distilled oil from their camper trees and sold them as medicine and perfume as a side hustle to everyone from the neighbors to the priests. Ever since Hala was born, Mama had been reminiscing about simpler days spent raising chickens and hogs or watching the sun touch the valley's horizon through the sand hills. She felt secure. Her family was secure, their legacy intact. Hala regenerated Paul more quickly than anyone Mama had ever seen. She was the future, the successor. For the first years of Hala's life, Mama fantasized without worry. She would sink deep into her mattress and recall the smell of the sycamore azalea. How as a child, unlike her relatives, she was endowed with an apprehension about her sense of place while living on a seemingly congenial pocket of space where the land and water met. Moving to Harlem had brought its challenges. The camellia red beans, white lily flour, Creole seasoning, and Louisiana hot sauce did not cook so richly here. In the summertime, the scent of fried chicken wafted through the air. 
Then in the colder months, the air smelled of nothing but rain. They substituted their gardens for flower pots, lawns for stoops, camphor oils for their bodies. But at least they owned their brownstone outright. She and her husband, Alexander, had pulled their resource together, what she made selling her car and what he made as a blacksmith to move up north and start anew. Of course, the city lights had been too much temptation for him. Just like a man, Mama often told herself when she caught herself missing him. He had no interest in being a blacksmith anymore or hearing about how Mama was progressing with the call-bearing business. Whatever earnings they cultivated, he squandered on drinking and gambling. Until finally, Mama caught him laid up with a cabaret singer. She kicked him and his belongings out on Frederick Douglass Boulevard, and he left without so much as a request for reconciliation, let alone an apology. The only thing she could remember him by was a small wrinkled photo of him that she kept on her desk and had never thought to remove after all these years. Since Alexander left her with two small children, Mama poured everything she could back into their home, devoting painstaking efforts and making sure every corner was dusted and every surface polished. The home, like her business and her children, was her world. And she was hell-bent on preserving her world, bounded within these four walls. Thank you. Thank you. So there were some definite themes that I noticed uh, in reading the book. One of them is the sinister role of money as mm. a motivator, especially like with Landon and Josephine, because it's like they wanted to be free, but the money was just too good. And so they yeah. never, they always acquiesced. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm making you laugh. <laughs> um, yeah. Capitalism is a powerful thing. And I want to just contextualize that part of it because I was actually revising this book in late May of June of last year. So that was in the beginning, that was during social isolation. That was during the pandemic and society fell apart and it made me more conscious of the things that people do to survive. And so you have this man Landon who is a lot more worldly than Josephine. He has his own family. And Josephine feels like a prisoner in her home. And yeah, they want to escape, but where are they going to go? And that's one thing that Mama kind of wields at the moment where you think that Josephine is going to finally exert some self-autonomy. Just open the door. And she says, where are you going to go? You're probably going to go only as far as Marcus Garvey Park. Mm -hmm. And the sad thing about that is that it's true. And, you know, in the midst of, revising my novel I've been watching a lot of documentaries on abuse and you know some of them very zeitgeisty and things that Twitter talks about and sometimes people who don't understand will ask why didn't that person leave why didn't that person just call a lift why didn't that person call their friends why didn't that person open the door and you always hear from victims that they were isolated they were isolated from all that. So imagine in Josephine's position where you have all this money and you're and you're already isolated despite being in a big city. It's so hard to turn that knob because where else are you going to go? And, and what else are you going to do? If all your life you've been raised to, to believe that you were talented based on what you grew on your body, you don't have any other vocational skills. So you often feel limited in that way. Yeah, the more I think about it, it's really sad. It was very sad, but like even with you bringing up the role of abuse, I, I like that because that was something I tried to explore in my first novel was the the role of abuse and also almost making the the character seem as horrible as it sounds complicit yeah. in their own abuse because oh, yeah. they don't have the strength to get up and go. Let's talk what about it. No, yeah, let's talk. About, and that's the one thing that I never said in the book was abuse. Yeah, and it, it comes up once from Helena. Yeah, it comes up once from Helena when Helena, who is free, she is free because she is, for lack of a better word, damaged. Mm -hmm. And that's what her mother wanted. I'm not going to spoil it, what Iris does, but she wanted her to be free. And it's only when Helena realized, I want to help people in a different way. I want to be a social worker, that she gives this social worker other vocabulary to something that had been going on in her family for years, right? 
Yeah. And, and I often think about that with black women, some, you know, the conversations that I hear, some of the stuff that we think that we go through is so normal. And then we, we, we read a book or we watch something and we realize, no, that wasn't normal. This is a word for that. And it's, and it's terrifying. Um, but aside from what Helena says, the reason why I didn't put abuse in any of the other parts of the book is because it's so murky. Um, and it's so murky and I wanted the characters to speak for themselves. I wanted to show how characters can become wrapped up in it. And, and I think that when we think about capitalism and when it comes to black women's bodies, abuse, abuse is often a byproduct of that. And, there, and I don't know if there's any getting away from it. That's the bad part because these women made an enterprise out of their bodies. Um, and that's the hard part. So that's something I've still been thinking about to this day is like, if an interviewer asked me, well, why didn't you say that, they, you know, Hollow was being abused? Why won't you say that? It's because honestly, it didn't cross my mind. It didn't cross my mind because I wanted people to see the, the dynamics first before well, me putting think, it. Like, I don't even think that's something for you to say. Like, yes, you're the author and you're in control, whatever. That's a whole other discussion. Mm. But like, that's not <laughs> something that you can say writing the story of these characters. Like, I always feel like as authors, especially for fiction novelists, mm. you know, we are conduits of a story. Mm. So if they don't see themselves as being abused, and that's not for you to say. So right. like, when it only came up with Helena. I understood that, mm-hmm. but even you talking about them making an enterprise of their body and then the role of, of money, the role of black women and black motherhood. Mm-hmm. I felt I, I sensed the larger commentary on all the things that black people, especially black women do to survive. Mm. And it's still not enough for white people. Right. Well, I think that, I think it's interesting that you say that because I think for me, I often, I'm, I'm very hard on myself. And I often think when you're a black author and I'm sure you've been through this, a lot of times when you're interviewed, they want you to have an answer for everything. They want you to ask, well, who are you writing for? They want to ask, what do you think your responsibility is? Your social responsibility, aside from just creating art. You know what I'm saying? And so I definitely look at myself as a conduit. But there are times where I may, even aside from creating Hawk Call B, where I'm very hard on myself. And But I also remind myself that part of the reason why I made this book is because I want people to see Black women all their complexity, whether they rub them the wrong way or not. Um, it's about survival. And my survival doesn't look like someone else's survival. So rather than creating these parameters for these characters with certain, you know, with a certain lexicon, just let them speak um, and, 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 and come to your own conclusions. Yes. And, and one of the conclusions I got was that the role of women and children in society still as second-class citizens. Hold on, there was something that made me say that. Oh, wow. Page one. No, y'all was in it. I know, I love it. I love 129, it. you said, children have to be useful. They weren't born just to be born, but to continue a lineage. And I was like, hmm. So like everybody has to play a role, but even in the children and the women playing a role, they're still not, seen as doing enough even in toward the end with Amara and Ethan like their dynamic like she was very much an alpha woman very ambitious very in charge of herself and her career but she still made her feel or relegated her to a place of peonage oh wow yeah I mean because another thing that I got inspiration from um from for Amara's older character was Kamala Harris Mm. And the reason why I got the inspiration from her is because when she announced her presidential run, people were like, well, I don't trust her because of her policies while she was, you know, working as a senator in California. I don't trust her because how can she be progressive when she is a part of the carceral state? And that is something that I thought about. It's like, well, how, how Amar is someone who for all intents and purposes she has a vendetta against the Melanson family. She wants to go after them specifically, but to get the power to go after them unfettered in an unfettered way, she has to have casualties along the way. There's no sidestepping that if you are working as an assistant DA. And that's why I wanted to start off that part of the novel with the, the guilt that she has had to carry for all of these years because she just she's so hell-bent on taking them down, not even realizing all the casualties in her way or realizing it, but still suffering on the back end because of it. 
Yeah, the the creation of the Asali Givens case, I was like, okay, (laughs) here we go. Yeah, and you know what's interesting was Asali was actually going to be the short story of Carl Baby in the beginning. That was Asali was actually supposed to be um, the short story of Carl Baby, where she was the one that that gave birth to a Carl bearing child, and then she abandons that child. Not the child dies, and it was going to be a short story. Then it just expanded. So it's interesting how you know. <laughs> revision will take you in all different types of directions and even the stuff that you don't use you can put it in someplace else very very much so and the theme of mothers trying to do the best and make the best decision for their children Mm. comes later in the book in the exchange between iris and helena Mm -hmm. when i think iris says a mother will do whatever she has to to ensure her child's happiness even if it has to hurt and it's like you know children don't get any say shaping of their future and Mm-mm. so then they have to deal with the decisions of their parents mm-hmm. no matter what ain't that crazy I, I mean the other day this is going to sound tangential but one of my favorite bands is the crow and the lead singer i was i was reading of his personal life and he and his wife decided that they don't they're not they're not they didn't have children together because they feel like they didn't have the right to give life. Why would they give life to someone without them having any say in it? And I was like, hmm. And to this day, like I'm thinking about, cause I've never heard a couple do that. And that's the thing. We, we don't have a choice what our parents pass on to us. Good things, bad things, intergenerational child. We just, we don't. Um, sorry, not the crow, the cure. Sorry. The cure is the pen. Excuse me. Um, but <laughs> We don't have a choice what they pass on to us. And I think the thing with mothers is like, I'm thinking about a lineage of black mothers. I'm thinking about Setha, for example, and Beloved. Yes. Now, now, you know what I'm saying? And, and it's like, oh, if I, if I decontextualize, infanticide is horrible. Yes. But if you lived in a system as horrifying as slavery, and you don't want anybody to experience that, especially your child, what would you do? I'm not saying I would do that, but I understand where that act of desperation comes from. And so I think that is that is what I wanted people to also understand, aside from the magical realist aspects of it, the gravity of being a parent and what that means. And certain things are just inescapable, no matter where you turn. Um, yeah, all these questions are really making me think even long. It's weird how, you know, I don't know if you've gone through this as an author, but like I've written three books already, three published books. And, you know, I'm also, I, I started my life off writing online, my professional life. So I'm used to quickness, right? Mm-hmm. You write it, you move on, you write it, you move on. And I understand obviously that a book has a longer shelf life than a 1500 word article. Like, however, it's interviews like these where you realize that it still pulsates mm. even after you finish your edits, when the book is bound and you get a review copy and you put it away because you're thinking about another project, you're like, it still breathes. And sometimes someone has to show you um, the other aspects that you cover, but you're like, huh, it's just adding another layer to like that kaleidoscope where you're like, yeah, I did do that. Or, or yeah, maybe there was another another vein there that I added, but I just didn't think about because I'm thinking of the other overarching elements. So thank you for that. No, you're welcome. I, I, I completely agree and can understand that feeling, especially like with my, my last novel that came out, which was last year's called Beyond Bourbon Street, set mm. in New Orleans, post-Katrina mm. or whatever. But mm, wow. I wrote, when I wrote that book, I think it was like, 2016 but I knew it was never going to come out until 2020 and so when I went back to revise that book I had a a very different perspective Mm. on what had been written so it went through a a lot of revision heavy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and even though the story structure remained the same just my outlook kind of changed and so I, and I find myself now as I, I'm writing other projects and doing other things. I turned into manuscript yesterday. Well, congrats. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. Thank, thank you. Um, <laughs> just about how 
everything that I've done influences something that I'm getting ready to do next. Mm-hmm. And so those, those lingering things. So like, I definitely saw the influence of wandering in strange lands. I definitely saw the influence of beloved. I even saw an influence of Eve's Bayou only. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm glad that you like that comparison. I was like, I hope she doesn't think this is reductive. Absolutely <laughs> not. First of all, Eve's Bayou is one of the best movies directed by a black woman ever the one of the best movies i mean we could have a, a conversation about that people no that's not reductive at all that's 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 an honor thank you i love that you're thank welcome you. okay good because i was like i hope she doesn't think these of course are not oh yeah, my I god like, i no. saw, saw saw the connection to um eve's bayou and I, there might even be connection to daughters of the dust because, oh, oh my God! <laughs> because with the the story of how the Melanson's got to Harlem, and the story of the great great grandmother mm-hmm. learning that the call is regenerative, and so we can start to sell it to protect ourselves from the white people who are going to come lynch us if we don't give it to them. Right, right, and it's also then the daughters of dust. The old ways are changing. The old ways are changing. Um, I think with you know. You know, now that you brought up Ease by, I think the whole thing about um, Moselle, the character of Moselle, mm-hmm. you know, she's seen as, you know, Lewis, you know, played by Samuel Jackson's like, listen, my, 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 aunt, my, my, my sister is, you know, she's, she ha- she's not, she's not unfamiliar with the inside of a mental home. That's what he literally like said, you know, she's seen as crazy, but she has these premonitions. And that is interesting, you know, because Call Baby is built as a magical realist novel and i am okay with that because it is at the same time everything in that book feels real to me everything from the premonitions to the cracks in the wall um that all feels real and and not only that and i hate i don't want to take it too far because i don't want to be eye roll inducing but black women are supposed to be strong for everyone everybody thinks we're so strong everybody thinks we're so powerful with the beauty of everyone is a call that out of the ordinary think about how much people lean on black women for everything how everybody comes to us for everything, for our bodies, how much they have fed and nourished and sustained everybody else at the expense of ourselves is a call so far-fetched. See, I didn't even think it was that far-fetched because I think I thought of Gloria Naylor's book, Mama Day, where, wow. there's, talk, where there's talk of a call. And then also in my own pregnancy, when I was pregnant with my son, my water never broke. They, Get out of here. My water never broke. And so my son was going to be born under the call. But at the, at the very last, like ninth centimeter, they broke my water to try to speed up my labor because I was doing a natural delivery. Oh, they so, broke it like they actually broke it. Oh, my God. Yeah, they went oh, in and they broke my painful. water. Oh, my God. By Ooh. that time, I didn't feel it. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm like, oh, but yeah, they, they so. went in and they broke my water because it never broke on its own, even though I was in active labor. So uh. hearing the hearing the name call baby and understand, I was like, oh, I'm already in this because my son was damn near born under one. Right. <laughs> and my aunt, my aunt, my aunt Rini, that's right, I call her Aunt Shireen. She was born with a veil. That's what my mother said. And my aunt Rini, I'm telling you, she is under the radar, but she knows how to read people like nobody's business all the time she's always been that way um and that's what i always like to tell people like in african-american folklore someone who has a call is a very precious thing obviously i'm not the first person to mention it tina McElroy ainza who i quoted in the book um she wrote about the call as you said gloria naylor's mama day she also mentions it it's it's a very powerful thing um, and also just the idea of black other motherhood, you know, something that you mentioned earlier about revision. We are such different people from the first draft to the last copy edit. We changed so much. And I did because when I first thought of call baby um, back in 2015, I didn't even know if I wanted to be a mother. Hmm. Now, black motherhood is all I could think about. That's all I could think about. I think it was intensified um, back in 2018. I think it was when the New York Times wrote a feature of how many black mothers were dying, how many black mothers were dying. In fact, there was one time where the statistics were worse than they were during 1850. Um, I'll never forget it. And um, that really affected me. That affected, and that still affects me to this day. And and I thought about that. It's just black motherhood is such a precious thing. I would find myself reading interviews by black mothers. I'd find myself 
on Instagram looking at black mothers and their new babies under the covers at night feeling so ashamed. You know, I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I looking at people's families? And then when I spoke to one of my closest friends about it, I said, I don't understand why I'm doing this. Like, I know I'm writing my novel, but I don't even think about my novel while I'm scrolling. And she's like, maybe it's because you're just happy that they're alive. And when she said that, I feel like I, I almost cried because I was like, that has to do with it. To be happy and, and giggly and bubbly and to and to see life like that and safe. Um, that really affected me. And so, yeah, call. And it's I know it's weird because it's like I'm writing so much about black motherhood and like I'm not a mother. You know, I want to be. But I also know the risks involved with that as well. And I think that's that was the difficulty of it, even for me, because like my last book, as I mentioned, Beyond Bourbon Street is, is very much about black motherhood. Mm-hmm. And then we all remember, though, the the first time the, the black maternal health care crisis kind of popped up on the radar. I've written about it for in freelance pieces. I have another piece coming out, I think, next week that's going to be talking about it. Hell, I'm pregnant now. And so I, Wait, I'm all- <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. My daughter will probably be here by the time this interview comes out. Oh my God. Wow. Congratulations. It it, it, it wasn't so much that call baby was triggering or Mm. it's just that I I understood what you were coming, where you were coming from. And then I was like, I don't think she has any kids. (laughs) I don't, I don't, I don't. The only thing, my dad is a gynecologist. That's it. But my dad does not talk to me about that stuff. That's the only thing I can say. Um, It's funny because, oh my God, like last year, um, somebody messaged me on Twitter and was like, I had, I'm going to mess this up. So she's listening. I apologize. She's told me that she must have like nine miscarriages. And she was like, your book sounds amazing. I just don't know if I can read it right now, but I wish you the best of luck. And I said, I understand. Um, what reading about infertility amongst black women. Um, I worked at Zora. Zora, um, is a, is a digital magazine for black women under medium. And, we got so many pitches and we published so many articles about black motherhood, the black maternal crisis, infertility, IVF, IUI, et cetera, et cetera. And you can't not see that and have it not affect you. You just can't. Um, and it did. And that's the thing. It's funny because I, I'm, I'm, ho- I'm wondering if like during <laughs> promo for Call Baby, people are going to be like, so like how many kids do you have? And I'm like, I don't have any um, yet. Uh, but it's something that I think about so much. I think about black motherhood, just, just how much we give, you know what I'm saying? How much we give to the world and, and how much we've been through um, historically that we still give life to others. Um, it's something that is inspiring to me. And that is something that I've just wanted to explore with this book. So when I wrote it, I wasn't, I was thinking about all mothers the good, the bad, the in-between, the unsure, uncertain ones, the young, the old, the rich, and the poor. Um, I thought about all of them. And that's, you know, I hope I did a good job. It definitely comes through in the different mother-daughter dynamics with Denise and Amara, even Layla and Amara, Hallow and Josephine and Iris and Helena and Mama. It, It all comes through. But what I also noticed is when you were crafting the story in the beginning about Layla, you touched on how Ralph felt. Now, oh, like, yeah. you never hear about how a man feels when his wife when his wife goes through a miscarriage. And so oh. you kind of gave that perspective a voice. And even though he did what he did <laughs> in the end and made his decisions, I was uh-huh. like, I understood it because he has gone through the same grief as well, even though it wasn't from his body. You know what? And it's funny because, you know, when I was in there, when I was revising it, my beta reader, um, they're non-binary and they were saying, you got to give more, give, I don't want to say give the man more lines, you know, center him, but, but show that this is a journey that they have taken together as a couple. And what does that look like? And so I didn't want to write Ralph off so much that people forget who the owner should be on. However, I wanted people to see that, like, how does it make him feel every time his wife is disappointed? 
and herself? How does it make him feel if you live in a society as a black man and you know you have to deal with all these messages of your virility and your masculinity and you can't produce a child with a woman that you love more than anybody else in this world? It makes you feel like a failure. Not in the same way it makes Layla feel like a failure, but because he can't do anything with his own hands. You know, remember, he's an architect. So he's used to doing things with his hands. He can't do anything with his own might. And it just, it, it, it takes the light from them both. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I, it's funny. Like as I'm talking to him, I'm like, damn, I did write that. Yeah. Ralph is an architect. So he's used to doing things with his hands. He's used to using his mind and figuring things out. And this is the one thing that there's no amount of calculation that he can get right. Um, and it crushes him as it would anybody. So yeah, I wanted to, yeah, sorry. No, no, it's like it crushes him, but even Josephine's miscarriages crushed oh, yeah. Landon. And then his role in the family as intermediary, accomplice, lover, father. Yeah. And and all of that still not being enough. It's like it, it was very obvious the men were crushed under the weight that the women had to rise above. Wow. Say that one more time. The men were crushed under the weight that the women had to rise above. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. And, oh. and, 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 and because they, you know, they had no other choice. I mean, think about it. Ralph was like, I'm going back home. I'm going back home to new England. I need to go to my parents' house to collect myself. I spoiled it, but you know, and uh Landon is like, I could just go down the street. I got my home with my wife. I got other kids there. So it's like they they had a cushion in the way that these women did not. And that's not to say that all men have a cushion, but I'm like, what about women here? There's certain privileges that they're just women will never have. And I wanted to elucidate that with these two men without making, without making them seem too dimensional, without making it seem like they can't experience grief themselves. And I've actually, you know, have been around men or, I've wa- or I have watched things with men talking about what miscarriages have done to them. So I, it's not like I was just Im- totally imagining it. Yeah, the, the layers of the book were extraordinary. Because as you can see, I can talk about it like for the whole day because I finished and I was like, oh, we got some stuff to talk about. Thank you. But Thank the, you. The layers were extraordinary. People are really going to love it. I want to shift into... A quick speed round, and then we'll do our last question, and I'll let you get back to your day. Okay. Uh, thank. I just want to say thank you so much for enjoying the book. I'm just like, I know. I'm like, God. I'm not a black mother, and it's also my debut novel, so it's it hits me in a nerve that's different from my debut nonfiction. So I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I did. I really did. I was like, uh, uh-uh, I gotta, I gotta get into this, but it, and it, for me, it was so familiar because you're talking about Louisiana, so there were things that I was automatically familiar with. Um, you you mentioned the camellia red beans. I chuckled. So I mean, for me, it it felt like home. And Thank you. It was. It, I loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and granted, I did. I did rely on. You know, I had to remember what I experienced when I was in Louisiana. I also read like the narratives of Jasmine Ward, for example, mm-hmm. um, and to also help me to just tap into that ancestral knowledge that I'm still learning about. So thank you. You're very welcome. So speed round. What is okay. your favorite book? Oh my God, my favorite book. Well, uh, my, oh God, one of my favorite, I'll say one of my favorite books. One of my favorite books actually is um, uh, Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Um, Another favorite book of mine is um, uh, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. That's another favorite book of mine. And I think the third one I would say is um, The Temple of the Golden Pavilion um, by Yukio Mishima. I'm a huge Japanese literature fan. So that's another one that I would say. So I can't just choose one. I'm a Gemini. I'm really sorry. No, it's cool. Uh, who is your favorite author? Oh, my God. My favorite author. I'm going to say my favorite author right now. My favorite author is Jasmine Ward. What is your favorite movie? My favorite movie, I'm going to say Coming to America. So have you seen the sequel? I just saw it. I just finished it today. <laughs> <laughs> we watched it last night. Yes. Uh, and who is your favorite artist? Uh, like a musician, musician, or if you like visual art, whichever, I won't limit you. Okay. I'll say my, my favorite, uh, music, music artist. I'll say Sade. 
So you had this line in the book, so I have to ask. Do you oh. consider yourself an insufferable, bougie Black person? Ah, uh, no. Bougie, yes. Sometimes. Depends on what we're talking about. Yes, I am bougie at certain things. I hope I'm not insufferable. <laughs> I hope I'm not. And I, I'm glad I have friends who will let me know, okay, you're doing too much. Why'd you ask for that line? <laughs> I just... I noticed like in books, and I guess because I do it too, there are some times when the author is writing in the voice of the character and in in the vein of the book. And then there are some times when authors are speaking out loud to themselves. Oh, so I was wow. like, mm, like, that doesn't seem like that's necessarily a character observation. <laughs> well, because it's like, well, because... Well, the reason why I wrote that line in there is because you have these Black women that don't have no friends. They don't invite nobody over. They keep to themselves. And it's like... You're in a community like Harlem. Why don't you integrate with that? And you've been there for so long. So it's like, are you uppity? Like, do you think you better than everybody else? And so like, when I put that line in there, I was like, I want to think about the ways in which I may have mischaracterized other Black women and maybe other times Black women have mischaracterized me. And I wanted to bring that line in there about how even when, you know, uh, Layla and Josephine had that moment, just talking about their infertility, quick exchange, how it just made her feel less alone and she couldn't stop thinking about it when she went back home. So yeah, it was definitely talking um, through the characters for sure. Cause I was like, yeah, I definitely mischaracterized a ton of people and I feel like it's happened to me too. And sometimes we got to just get corrected and we walk away with something bigger. Yeah. Um, what's the role of religion and or spirituality in your life? Because you bring in a lot of elements of Catholicism. Then they mention their Episcopalian. They go to a Baptist funeral. And then there's the Orisha with Yemoya. So how does that role play in your life? Oh, it's huge. Just monumental. You know, I grew up, I was born and raised Pentecostal. I was, um, I was baptized in Episcopalian church. I, um, excuse me, raising, I, I, I attend virtual Baptist services from time to time. Um, with regards to African spirituality, I have many people in my life who, who study it. Um, even those who I've done field work with for my second book. So the Orishas, the main Orishas that I heard about a lot about were uh, Oshun, Yemaya, for example. Um, those were the biggest ones. Um, and I, I love learning about it. I love learning about what has kept those of diaspora sustained um, throughout the centuries. Um, so that's why I wanted to bring that in. Um, that, that was really important for me to do that um, because I'm a big fan of syncretism because I do believe that if you were, if you were descendant of enslaved, you often had to meld certain traditions together for survival. And I wanted that blend. I wanted people to see, especially those who black people who may think it's of the devil, if it's not of God, of Christ, or even people just have no idea that these different types of spiritual disciplines exist one side by side with each other. They're not diametrically opposed as white supremacy would allow us to believe. And they're just as close as neighbors. And so that's what I wanted to be able to blend. And I hope I uh, blended in a way that respected those of the respective uh, religions. Um, but yeah, they, they're all um, important to me. Okay, random tangent. Have you been to Cuba? I have not, and I want to go so badly. I've been stopping learning so much about it while I while in quarantine. Yeah, I went to Cuba in 2018. Um, but you you talked about you love the syncretism, and what I noticed because we made sure that our tour was extra black. <laughs> oh, I know that's right. So they have a, a, a like a um basically like a black museum there where you learn about the history of, of blacks in Cuba, and mm. the first few rooms are about. Ifa and then Santeria and then some of the other brotherhoods absolutely in, in the religion so I definitely recommend that and then whenever you want to go to Nigeria and go to Yoruba land then there's also absolutely <laughs> all of that stuff is I think is important even if you don't my personal belief is even if you don't believe in Oshun or Yemaya Ifa Santeria uh, Kanduble, you should still know about it as a person of the diaspora because I guarantee you through five degrees of separation you got a cousin or somebody who has practiced it or has an experience through those particular faiths so I do believe that it is important okay um back to the speed round what okay. do you prefer writing fiction or non-fiction 
and this time in my life fiction because reality's too real right now. <laughs> Understandable. Uh, what was the first book where you saw yourself? The first book that I saw myself. Oh, you're going to laugh at this. I think it was the Cheetah Girl series from back no, in the day. I'm not going to laugh at that. I, I'm sorry. Like, I, I, I love it. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> No, mine would have to be probably Fly Girl by Omar. Oh, no. See, I read that when I was way too young. I need to revisit that, actually. I think way I read it when young. I was like 10. So I probably oh, yeah. should have been seeing myself in that book. But I, I think did. I remember. I remember exactly where I was. When I, was re- I was trying to read it while I was getting my hair done. And I did not understand some of the explicit scenes going on there. But I still read it because it's like trying to get my mind off the pain. So, <laughs> Yeah, I I think that was one of the first books I was like fed through as a child. I think I read that book in like three days. And I remember the cover. She was black girl on the cover. She had like the bamboo triangle earrings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? If I could live anywhere in the world, it would probably be either um, Berlin or Tokyo. Besides New York. Yeah. I did not expect those places. To what you going? think I was gonna say? <laughs> oh, maybe actually, yeah. I didn't expect Berlin. <laughs> yeah, no. Honestly, if it was in, if I did not live in New York, um, if it's stateside, I would say probably Louisiana. I would say that if it's the if it's abroad, it would be either between Berlin or Tokyo. Wow, that is awesome. Thank you. So let's let's transition to our last little bit. So, okay, is it? Are you working on anything new? Because I know a writer's always writing. Oh yes, I am. <laughs> of course, I am. I'm always, I'm always creating. I know there are times I'm like, I need to take breaks. Like I look at certain artists like Sade who can go like four, five, ten years in between projects. But like, my mind is constantly moving, and I think especially in quarantine, like, I have no other choice but to daydream. I have no other choice but to feel like I got to escape because I can't go anywhere right now. Is it hard for you in separating the creativity from the work that you do as a, an editor? Um, damn, that's a good question. Well, I think when I do my editing roles, um, when I do my editing, um, I when I'm an editor, I, I, I don't divorce it because sometimes um, I learn about how to revise work when I'm looking at other people's work. I knew that I never wanted to be a writer that just writes. I just can't. I'm a person that always likes to have different cylinders going um, and just writing and not communing with other people, whether it's through revising or editing, that seems like kind of boring to me. Um, so I I my creativity stems in a lot of ways. My creativity can stem from oh, I, can, I know how a narrative art can develop here, um, and I see that through somebody's story. And I'm like, okay, maybe I can apply that same type of technique when I'm doing my own. So not necessarily, um, but I will say this: writing for a book is different than writing online. When you're yes. writing online, your expanse is between on average 850 to. 2,000 words. When you're writing a book, as you know, it's 60,000 words plus. So I definitely, you definitely have to stretch yourself more um, if you're trying to apply the techniques that you use online to, you know, in a print format. So my (laughs) final question for the interview, you have staked your career as a writer. Your voice is very dominant in the marketplace online and now in in the literary area with with your books Mm. you're dead and gone what would you like someone to write about you and your legacy oh I would like somebody to say she was just multi-layered you know I want somebody to say listen everything she'd had many parts but if you really pay attention every part was synergistic with something else her from her essays to her books to her writings online to the to the uh to the pieces that she edited all of them are in conversation with each other so i am hoping that i'll have a career of many faces what i mean by that is that someone could say okay she writes nonfiction, but she also writes novels she writes novels but she can also do visual art she can do visual art but she can also edit pieces um, I, that's what I want for people to understand when I'm long. First, I want to be remembered. That's number one, because a lot of black women, their works can get lost, quote unquote. I want to be remembered. And I also want people to understand that despite 
how much versatility I've shown, everything that I've put out in the world is in conversation with something else. It's a call and response, I guess. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, that was awesome. Big shout out to Morgan Jerkins for joining us on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out Morgan's debut novel, Call Baby, out now. You will not be disappointed. And if you're not following Morgan, which you already should be, but if you're not, follow her on the socials. She's at Morgan Jerkins on Twitter and underscore Morgan Jerkins on Instagram. That's our show for the week. If you liked this episode and want more Black and Published, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. And if you've liked what you heard, leave us a rating, leave a review, leave a comment. Let us know who you'd like to hear on the show next. We want to hear your feedback. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Twitter and Instagram. We're at BLK and Published on both platforms. And if you want to keep up with me, head to my website, newrights.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-I-T-E-S.com. You can also follow me on the socials. I'm at Nikisha underscore Elise on both Twitter and Instagram. That's our show for the week. I'll holla at y'all next time. Peace. <laughs>